Good morning. My name is Josh Quayer, as Dr. Burroughs already mentioned. I'm a college student pastor here at FBC Las Cruces. And I have the privilege of coming and preaching today. And I'm really excited because there's probably no other topic like the one we're going to talk about that's been sung about, written about, that's been idolized or idealized like the one we're talking about. And it's taken up the thought life of everyone from Shakespeare to the high schoolers down the street. The great theologian C.S. Lewis to daytime TV writers. It's even taken the thought of pop artists and the great Beethoven. There's perhaps no other thing that is truly as important than the one we're going to be talking about today. And the Beatles even wrote their song, All You Need Is, and you can fill in the blank. Yeah, you got it. And Mike actually did a great job preaching the message. I'm just going to preach it again um, because it's worth preaching again. But people apart from Christ have taken this idea of love and they mutate it and to change it into something that it was never meant to be. And we as Christ followers can even miss the full scope of what it means to love others if we're not careful. And you said, I'm talking about love. And when Jesus Christ came to earth some 2,000 plus years ago, he changed the definition of love, or rather gave us a truer picture of what it is. And by doing so, changed human history. So Jesus Christ, I want you to see, loved people with a holy love. And one of those people was this guy named John. And John wasn't always a follower of Christ. In fact, he was a fisherman at one point. And in the Middle Eastern sun, fishermen's nets would get frayed and torn. And as he was repairing them one day, this guy, Jesus, walks up and says, follow me. And John does. And he was this firsthand eyewitness to the love of God through Christ Jesus. And so when John wrote his gospel, this storytelling people who Jesus is, he would call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. So he wrote that gospel, but he also wrote three letters. We call them 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He probably didn't call them that. They were just his letters. But in 1st John, we're going to see today that we are called to love other people well. And John writing that letter, he was writing from first-hand experience. He lived life with Jesus. He was there when Jesus touched and healed lepers. He was there when Jesus told paralyzed people to get up and walk. He was there when he taught and fed the crowds of thousands. John was also there when Jesus wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus and then raised him from the dead. John was there when Jesus was arrested, taken, put on trial, and murdered on the cross. John also saw with his own eyes the risen King Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? And so when he's writing this letter, he starts in the first chapter by saying, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, this we write to you. He's talking about his experiential, this close, personal kind of relationship he had with Jesus while he was on earth. John lived life with Jesus. So when there came some people who in the church were trying to propagate some false teaching about Jesus, John stood up and he wrote this letter. And in the first part of this letter, he's combating those false doctrines, those bad teachings about who Jesus was, some of the people were trying to convince others that Jesus didn't actually die a physical death. And John's like, hold up, guys. I was there. I saw him die, and I also saw him rise again. And so John's writing this argument, basically, that can be summed up like, because of the love of God the Father, he sent his son Jesus. And Jesus really did die. He really did rise again, and he really is alive and working today in his church. And because of this reality, we should give our life over in faith to him and walk in obedience in love and truth. So we're called to love people, 
because a people loved by God with the holy love should love people. That should pop up. People loved by God with a holy love should love people. All right. So let's dig into the text. 1 John 4. 1 John 4, 7 through 11. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you have your smart device, just punch it in. It's also going to be up on the screen. Let's read that together. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So, as I mentioned, John was writing to correct some bad doctrine, but after he does that, he kind of pivots to one of the great implications of faith in Jesus Christ, and that's that we are commanded to love one another well. Or simply put, people loved by God love people. So there's nothing else you get away from this morning. I want you to remember that, that a people loved by God love people. See, right belief in Jesus Christ is of utmost importance. Because the Bible also says, without faith it is impossible to please God. We need to get that right. We need to put our faith in Jesus Christ. He's the only way we can be made right with God. But after we get that, we have to understand that we are also called to love others well. See, that right belief in Jesus Christ will always translate into right living for Jesus Christ. If our beliefs as Christians don't cause us to move towards others in love and compassion, then something's off balance. Maybe we're not even believing the right things in the first place. So John is going to build this case, and he starts this passage by calling them beloved, as if he's going to remind them, hey, you are a loved people. And what do loved people do? Loved people by God love people. He says, beloved. He's going to build this case on why the beloved need to love one another. It's because love is a distinguishing mark for Christians. And apart from the way we honor God and worship him, it's the defining characteristic for Christ's followers, is the way we love others and love us in the church. And get this, because he's not going to build the case that people deserve or earn our love in any way, because we know that in our own lives, people don't earn or deserve our love. They fail us often. But we're to love because love is from God, he says. John writes, God is the beginning or originator or author of love. That's what it means to say love is from God. And he's going to write later on in this same letter that we love because he first loved us, right? And so if we understand what love is, why we should love, how to love, because God has shown us. And it's hard to imagine a world in which we're devoid of God's love, where we don't have that experience. And we can begin to imagine, and as awful things happen, like some, the thing that happened this weekend, we still know that God's love exists, and it still exists in his church today. So, John writes, love is from God. And he is writing from personal experience, this first-hand account, experiencing Jesus Christ's love, and it was so impactful for him. It was so impactful for Jesus' disciples, his first followers, that they actually changed the New Testament, the Greek language, right? The language that they used to write the New Testament. Because this word that's translated love here is this word agape. It's a Greek word. 
And it wasn't used very much before the New Testament writers, but the New Testament writers, wanting to convey this kind of love that God has for them, kind of borrowed it. And they changed the meaning to now convey this kind of the highest form of love, the kind of love that God has for his people. This highest form of love is a sacrificial love that gives of itself for the well-being of others. In our case with God and his people, it's our eternal betterment, as we'll see. So John makes it clear in his letter that those who have been born of God, meaning those who have experienced salvation in Jesus Christ, and those who know God have that continuing relationship where they know him better are to love others well. He says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So we can say one of the gauges we use to determine how well we know God is how well we love others, especially those in the church. One of the gauges in which we determine how well we know God is how well we love others. Because increasing in the knowledge of God, like knowing God better, that's our goal, right? We want to know him better. But we have to see that that also means increasing in love and compassion for those around us. If you want to see how far along you've come in your walk with Jesus Christ, if you're maturing in that and growing, look at the way that you love others well. Because that's one of the gauges. Because it's not only necessarily those who give the right answers, who give the most money, or seeing the loudest that determine that they've been born of God. And I know Troy and Mike are like, well, what are you doing? But um, it's not only those who go overseas on missions, and it's not only those who devote their lives to full-time ministry, or those who have the most theological degrees that necessarily know the most about God. It's those who love well, the way that Christ loves his church. And don't get me wrong, because if you walk out of here today and you say, oh yeah, Josh said we don't have to give money to the church. That's how I don't have a job. I don't have a job Monday morning if you hear that, so don't hear that. All of those are important. They're very important, and all of those can be determining factors in the way that we grow in our walk with Christ. But here John is saying, it's maybe easy sometimes to fake those. It's a lot more difficult to fake our love for other people, and our love is the way that people know where Christ follows. So all of those are important. It's the way we love is a good gauge. So show me someone who loves well the way that Christ loves his church, and I'll show you someone who's maturing well and following after him. And if this is true, and it is, then the opposite of it is true as well. If someone claims to know God, if someone claims to be a Christ follower, a Christian, and doesn't love someone well, or if they're withholding love from someone, if they hate someone, then something's amiss, right? There's a disconnect in what they're believing. And why? Well, John would say, because God is love. Do you get that? He says God is love. This means that love is a central part of who he is. In his characteristic or attribute, love is one of those. So it's important, actually, when we talk about the attributes of God or his character, to not start with love, which may seem weird because this is a message on love, right? But we need to actually start at another point in understanding God's attributes. And that place is his holiness, we need to start with understanding that God is holy. And Dr. Burroughs has done a good job in the past preaching on this. This word for holy literally means cut from, separated, right? This means that God is holy. He's separate from us in his nature. So we need to understand that God is holy first and foremost because that helps us understand how he is loving. So when John writes God is love, he's saying, in effect, God is holy love. It's a different kind of love than we know in and of ourselves. This also means 
that we need him to show us what love is. It's also important to note that God loves us with a holy love. So when it says God loves us, it's with a holy type of love. This means a couple things. This means that we don't get to define how we come into relationship with God. We don't get to define how we love God. He does. That's his job. He sets those terms for a relationship with him. And it's through Jesus Christ, his son. This also means that you and I don't get to define what it, love looks like when we love other people, right? We don't get to define what love is for other people. That's God's job. He does. God is love, and he loves us with a holy love. And this is where people who, apart from Christ, try to redefine love on their own. They take that phrase, God is love, and kind of flip it on its head to say love is God. And what I mean by that is that when people define love as the ultimate, the supreme in their life, it's the thing that guides them, every decision that they make, it's love. That means that they've made love God in their life. And the problem with this is that this is really just a love for ourselves. This is actually selfish because we're defining love the way we see fit rather than defining love the way God sees fit. So here's John writing to combat that idea. Love is not God, but God is love. And he shows us his love because if we try to define love apart from him, we're going to mess it up. So we need his help, right? We need him to show us. And hopefully you saw that in the text that he shows his love by sending his son, Jesus Christ. That's how his love is made manifest among us. So if we were able to bring John, the apostle, up here and ask him, John, how do you know that God loves you and he loves us? He would say, look to God the Father, sending his son, Jesus Christ, into the world as a man, completely God, completely man, so that we might live through him. Right? He would say, look to the gospel. So, we look to God sending his son Jesus as a demonstration of his love for his people. In other words, if you want to know that God loves you, we look to Christmas, right? That's what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate the fact that God took on flesh. Jesus came to earth as a baby so that we might live through him. So we can look to Christmas as evidence of God's love for his people. So God's love for us, this tells us, that God's love for us is an active and giving type of love. It's a love that gives and acts for the betterment of the one loved. And in this case, in our relationship with him, that's our eternal betterment. We get to live forever because of faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done. So we don't only look to Christmas, though we do, we look to the, there's this big theological word, incarnation, right? That means Jesus Christ coming as a human to earth. We look to that. We look to Christmas, but we also look to Easter, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ as evidence of God's love for his people. See, it says here that God loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. And this word propitiation really isn't used often in our day-to-day life. Like, I can't remember the last time my wife and kid and I were at lunch and the bill comes and I'm like, don't worry, Sarah, I'm the propitiation for this bill. Like, that's a correct use of the word, but we just don't use it in our day-to-day life. But this idea of propitiation is really important and it's really meaningful because it shows us that God loves us. He loves his people. So to explain this idea of propitiation, sort of like me, if I were to go out on this next weekend and test drive a Lamborghini convertible, first of all, 
I'm a college pastor, so <laughs> there's no way I can afford this Lamborghini convertible. But for some reason, they let me drive it. And I'm driving down the highway, and it's time to go back to the dealership. So I start heading back. And I lose control, and I just wreck it. And I'm fine. Everyone else is fine in the car, but the Lamborghini is wrecked. It's totaled. You can't even drive it back to the dealership. So I have to call them up. They bring a tow truck, and we get back to the dealership. They're like, Josh, you wrecked this. You messed this up. You owe us the money for this Lamborghini. And I try to tell them that I'm a college pastor. There's no way I can afford this. They don't buy it. I need to pay this. So I think of the first person that comes to mind when I think of someone kind and compassionate and caring, and that's Dr. Burroughs. So I call Dr. Burroughs up, and I'm like, hey, David, you'll never guess what happened. Everyone's fine. He's like, don't worry, Josh. I got it covered. He hangs up the phone, drives over. He's senior pastor, so he pays cash for the Lamborghini. And it's great, because I'm off scot-free. He paid the debt that was owed me, right? And in fact, because it's even better than that, he's like, because I love you as my brother, Josh, I'm going to pay for a new Lamborghini for you. And I'm just like, man, that's so awesome. So he pays cash for a new Lamborghini. Sarah and Atlas and I, my family, we drive home, and it's great. At that point, Dr. Burroughs was the propitiation, right, for the debt I owed because I wrecked the Lamborghini. And you may have connected the dots to how that relates to our relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the payment for the debt we owed because of our sin. Through Jesus' death on the cross, he took payment that was owed ourselves, canceling the debt and punishment that we racked up because of our sin, so that by believing in him, we can have forgiveness of sin and that restored relationship with God. Just like I would never be able to afford that Lamborghini, we would never be able to pay back the payment for our sins. We could never do it. We could live a million years and still never get close. So that's the kind of love that God has for his people. It's kind of holy, perfect love. But get this, because it gets even better than that. And we might have just skimmed past it if we weren't careful, but it gets even better because God loves us this way, but who loved who first? God loved us first. Isn't that awesome? It's not that we have loved God, John writes, but that he loved us. This means that God's love for us predates our love for him. And the original Greek here is very emphatic, right? And if you'd allow me to translate, it might say something like, we ain't never did nothing loving to or for God. It's that emphatic. We didn't do anything for or to God, nothing loving when he loved us. Paul, another New Testament writer, would put it this way in his letter to the Romans, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's hard for us to imagine what that fully means, and I don't know if we fully grasp that yet, because we don't often like to think of how we sin, how we fall short, how we don't measure up to the holiness of God. But while we were still far off from him, while we were still in open rebellion, when we wanted nothing to do with God, he loved his people. God loved us then. And how do we know that? Well, it's not because we deserved or earned God's love, right? And it's not because God gives us everything we want. It's not because we have comfortable lives. It's not because we aren't with material need. It's not because we're rich or have big houses. And it's not because our bodies are never sick or our bodies never ache. We know God loves us 
because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the good news that God sent his son as a replacing payment for the sins I owed. And he did this as an act and demonstration to show his love amongst us while we were still sinning against him. Right? Or as John would put it, it's not that God, not that we loved God, but that God loved us. So this also means that God loved us. He loved his people when we were not very lovable. And we did nothing to deserve that love. See, it's kind of natural to love someone who's lovable. It's somewhat easy to love someone who's lovable. But it's supernatural to love someone who's unlovable. And this is the kind of love that God has for his people. He loved us when we were unlovable. And get this, because it's even better than that. Because God didn't just love us with some kind of general sense that, oh yeah, God's obligated to love us because he's, you know, he's God. He loved us in a personal, a real sense, a closeness. Jesus illustrates this when he says that God knows the number of hairs on your head. Isn't that awesome? And I know for some of us in here, that's not a big deal because the number's like three. It's okay because it's not about the number. It's about that closeness. It's about that personal nature of the relationship we have with God. Isn't that awesome? So to sum up John's argument in his letter, he's going to sum it up in one sentence for us, which is awesome because I like easy summaries. He says, Beloved, Remember, you are people loved by God. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John's making it super clear for us here that a people loved by God will be loving people. You get that? So in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, how that is clear evidence that God loves us, his people, with the kind of love that gives of itself, that predates our love for him and loved us when we were not very lovable, we should love others. Because we have been loved by Christ, let's love like him. That means we love anyways. So if you're like me up to this point, you may be feeling pretty good. You're like, yeah, Josh, I get it. We're supposed to love people. And in fact, I can't even remember the last time I hated someone, so I must be doing pretty good. But I want to allow Jesus, if you you'd let him, to push that back a little bit, to expand our idea of who we are supposed to love into you, not just our circle, because we all have the circle, right, of people it's easy to love. People included in that circle are hopefully a spouse, right, uh, hopefully your kids, your family, maybe your neighbors in there, maybe, um, you know, a coworker even, but it's just easy to love. You like them, and they like you. But I want to allow Jesus to push that open, expand our circle into the idea that we're supposed to love people that are hard to love, that are opposed to us. We're supposed to love people that we may even consider our enemy right now. So Jesus' idea of love or those we're supposed to be loving towards is expanded past that circle. And Luke documents this well in chapter 6 of his gospel when he records Jesus commanding us to love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. See that? Jesus expanding our circle to include even our enemies. I'm, I'm working on this one. It's hard, right? And a few pages over in Luke, we see this interaction that Jesus has with a lawyer or a scribe. And it's the story that became known to us as the Good Samaritan. You guys may be familiar with that. But this story Jesus tells 
was because this lawyer wanted to kind of chip up Jesus and trick him into maybe saying something that was wrong or false. But he's Jesus, and of course he knew that was coming, and so he did some Jesus jujitsu. And when the lawyer asks, he says, all right, I know you have two commands that we're supposed to follow. We're supposed to honor God. We're supposed to love him with our, all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The others, like it, you said, you said, we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourself. And Luke gives us some commentary. Brian did a great job if you were here at Grow a couple weeks ago explaining this, but Luke gives us some commentary when he says that the lawyer was just trying to justify himself. He was just being self-righteous when he asked, who's my neighbor? Well, Jesus gives this story we know as the great Good Samaritan to illustrate that our circle of those we're supposed to love is much wider than we often think. And the story goes that a man was walking between two cities and in the valley he came across some people who robbed him. They mugged him, they stripped him of his clothes and left him for dead. And there were two religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders, who seeing the man beating, they don't know if he's dead or alive, for whatever reason, they pass, they take a wide berth around him and go on their way. And Jesus doesn't tell us in the story why they did that. Maybe they were just trying to, um, you know, keep themselves clean, the ceremonial law. But whatever the reason was, they showed no love, no compassion towards this man. And then there was this third man, a Samaritan, right? And it's hard for us to grasp just how challenging that must have been for this Jewish audience because I don't think they would have even maybe put good and Samaritan in the same sentence. But here's the Samaritan, and he's the hero of the story because he sees the man, and he stops, he binds up his wounds, carries him to the next town, pays for his hotel room, and leaves a deposit for anything else that man might need. He shows love to this guy who fell among the robbers. The Samaritan is the hero of this story. And I think that's just, again, just difficult for us to understand how crazy that must have sounded to the people hearing it at first. And people try to draw parallels. Well, a good Samaritan is like this people group now. And I don't think that's always wise. We just need to let the story sit in its context. So in its context, we know that for the Jewish people hearing that story, Samaritans were ethnically different and they had some wacky religious ideas. So for most Jewish people, the Samaritans were unworthy of their love. They were maybe seen as inferior and maybe even unworthy of the love of God. So when Jesus tells this story, he makes the Samaritan the hero and the lawyer shocked. I can imagine like how shocked he must have been. Can't even bring himself to say anything, ask any questions. So Jesus asks the question, he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? to the man who fell among the robbers. And again, the lawyer's silent for a moment, and then he answers, I guess it's the one who showed mercy. He can't even bring himself to call the man a Samaritan. Jesus says, go and do likewise. So we see from this story, as Christians, we don't get to say who or who is not worthy of our love. That's God's job. Remember, he sets the terms for how we love other people because he himself is love. This also means that we're called to even love those we don't agree with. But get this, loving them doesn't mean we agree with everything they say or do. Because we get that wrong sometimes. We think in our minds that, oh, for me to show love to this person means I affirm everything that they're about. Jesus never did that. He never taught us that. He taught us to love anyways. 
This also means we're called to love those who may seem opposed to us or what we stand for. And we're supposed to love even if that doesn't change their mind. We're supposed to love those we may even currently, at this moment, deem unworthy of our love. Or, put it even further, we're supposed to love even our enemies. And simply put, we as Christians are called to love anyways. And again, Luke records, if you love those who love you, this is Jesus' words, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. The implication here is that it does not take God's help to love people who are like us or who we like. It doesn't take God's help. Even sinners do that. Even sinners love those who love them. But as Christians, we're commanded to love those we don't like and who don't like us. And this absolutely requires God's help. Absolutely. This is not natural. So we need his help. And we're commanded to love those around us because we have been recipients of God's great love for us. So as we wrap up, if you're honest with yourself, maybe God's brought to mind some people, an individual, maybe if it's, even it's a whole group of people, it's just hard for you to love. And you wouldn't say you hate them, probably, but you haven't been loving towards them. You've been unloving. You've been withholding that love. That has no place in God's people. Because we have been recipients of God's holy love for us, we are called to love people. So in this time of invitation, I want to invite you um, to just, as you sit there, just reflect. Ask God to bring to mind those people whether it's an individual or even a whole group of people who it's hard to love. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a coworker. I don't know. Hopefully it's not someone in your own family, but maybe it is. Ask God to bring them to mind and just ask for forgiveness of that because that has no place in God's people. As Christ followers, we're called to love. Maybe you're sitting there and this whole idea that God is love seems foreign to you. That it just, you would never associate these words, love, with this word, God. Maybe disappointed, maybe like angry at you, but you would never associate love. That's because you haven't had that relationship with Jesus Christ that we're talking about. So I'd invite you that now in, in your seat, you can come up front. There'll be some of us up front. We'd love to pray with you. You can even do it in your seat. Just give your life over to God. You can give your life over to Jesus because we read that God showed his love for us by sending his son, Jesus Christ, into this world to live the perfect life that we couldn't, to die the death that we deserved so that we, so he could rise again and that we could rise again too someday. And we don't have to love well to be accepted in God's family, right? That's just a form of what we call legalism, doing something to gain God's favor, something that's not faith. We only have to believe in Jesus Christ good thing is God even gives us that belief. He gives us the faith to believe as an expression of his love. We just give our lives over to him. So whatever it is, I would ask you to just reflect in this time of prayer. And let's leave here loving people because people loved by God with a holy love love people. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this time together that you demonstrated your love for your people by sending your son, Jesus Christ and that through him we can live. God, this is awesome. We don't deserve this. But I thank you for it. God, I ask that you would bring people to mind that we need to love 
well. And in this time of reflection that we would ask for your forgiveness when we don't love well. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.